The Poetry of Truth, Reflections on the Gospel of Luke, narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 13. All culture begins with the body of the victim. All cultures have at their center shrines, and all these shrines have at their base the corpse of the victim. That's what temples are, that's what a pyramid is. Uh, I showed that, I tried to show that in the book, and the, there's an absolutely incredible thing in the Hebrew scriptures that gives you a, a vivid picture of the birth of the, uh, of the sacrificial altar, which is the pile of stones on top of the body of the one who's been stoned, uh, which is then, which is then uh, made into the sacrificial altar, which is then, then becomes the, the, uh, the original site of what will become the temple. So the temple and the, the Egyptian pyramid is exactly the same thing. The sacred figure is right dead center at the bottom of the pyramid. It's just like a pile of stones, except it's very carefully constructed pile of stones, but it's the same thing. So the pyramid, the altar, the temple, at the center of which is a corpse, is the center of conventional culture. It's the gathering apex of conventional culture. So, this has a lot to do with, the, the, with the, what's at issue in Luke's gospel, which is gathering or scattering. Because where are we going to gather? Down by the river? <laughs> or at the tomb? You see? Or at the tomb? Now, this is fraught with dangers be, because we could slide back into the old sacred system. If we gather at the tomb, there will be again, you see. The whole thing is there again. What if we have a shrine? What if the tomb had not been empty? We would today have a shrine, which is where Jesus is buried. Would Christianity be what it is today if that were the case? I submit to you, it most likely would not be. In fact, as you know, the Crusades, which, which became the gathering event for what we now call Europe, the Crusades were dedicated, at least rhetorically, to freeing the sepulcher of Christ in Jerusalem from the infidel, as though everybody had forgotten that it was empty. You see what I'm saying? So here's this the whole business is right here. And it makes the empty tomb so amazing to see it in this light. Now, we have to see it in other ways, and we have to understand it in a deeply personal way, and, it, and um, so on. So I'm just really in the vestibule of the Christian revelation when I speak this way. But while I'm in this roundabout uh, mode here, let me even go further afield and talk about secular existence today. Ultimately, the question I want to ask this morning, which I think ultimately is the question that the gospel presents us at, at a cultural level, is if the cross represents the desacralization of the world, represents the beginning, the decisive beginning of the desacralization of our world, 
Will the result of that decircularization simply be secularization? And I, as you know, feel very strongly that the, the anthropological role of Christianity, cultural historical role of Christianity, is to bring about the desacralization of the world in such a way as to heighten our religious sensibilities and bring us, bring us closer to the living God. There are a thousand ways of walking away from this, you know, drifting away, scattering, walking away, beating our breasts from the sacred system, which just lead to a secular world. In, in that Luke passage, you see these, these people turn around. They, the, 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 spe the spectacle did not reach its uh, foreseen catharsis. They did not leave throwing their hats in the air, ticker tape parade, hula, uh, you know, hooray, hooray for us. They didn't. They turned around walked away. If nothing interrupts that, that uh, mournful dispersion, all these people will simply end up as secularist, I mean, to speak in broader terms. And the question is, is there an alternative to that? Do we have an alternative? The role of Christianity is to present the world an alternative, to try to bring about that desecularization in a way that heightens religious sensibilities. On the other hand, if we just live in the secular world, eventually we, hung, we begin to hunger for the old sacred system in ways that we're not even aware of. And so we become predisposed to the kind of the kind of impulses and reflexes that lead us back into the old sacred system. And we know that some obvious versions of that are we know very well our tendencies get caught up in 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 violent crowds or crowds that are inching their way towards violence and so on. But uh, another version occurred to me this week, and I'll tell you, it's funny how it occurred to me, actually. And it's, it's not very flattering to me how it occurred to me. It occurred to me because I suddenly became slightly jealous of another author. But, I mean, not really, I suppose. But it's, it's kind of fu I thought it was kind of funny. I mean, it was really funny in a way. But um, it has to do with... Um, I mean, I think we should, when we look out in our world, we see, for example, the breakdown of morality, conventional morality, uh, whatever that means, uh, the breakdown, and, and it's very glaring, in, at, at, for example, at the sexual level, where the, the sexual restraints that were once pretty powerful parts of our culture have gone. And people who say, well, you know, you can't, that's not what it's all about. That's pharisaical or something. There's a certain truth to that. But on the other hand, when you see the breakdown of these things, you think, well, is, we don't, as I've so often said, we don't link that to a larger problem. We don't realize that that in the Baki, it, the, the, what's going to become the, de, the, the decapitation and dismemberment of Pentheus begins with a kind of frolicking breakdown of uh, taboos, uh, sexual taboos and so on. I mention this, because, and also in, the, in all ancient sacrificial rituals, well, I shouldn't say in all, in very many ancient sacrificial rituals, the first episode in the ritual is an enactment of the breakdown of sexual mores and other 
other uh, forms of cultural differentiation. Why? I'm getting way... I, I, I'm really getting into trouble here. Either this is going to come out and make sense or you're going to really think I've gone nuts. Here's why I got into that. Because I read something in this week's paper about the new Anne Rice novel, which made me think of the earlier novel, which was made into this movie called Interview with the Vampire. Why am I talking about this? Because we're about to talk about the empty tomb and the uh, and the cult of death. In a way. The cult of death. In some sense, every culture is a cult of death. The word culture comes from the word cult. Uh, and in some sense, quite literally, every culture is a cult of death. And it's very easy for Christianity to become, and has become many times, the cult of death. But in fact, the resurrection means that death has been conquered, and it cannot be the cult of death. If it's the cult of death, it's just another version of the same old thing. And I mention that because a number of things came into my mind, and I was totally undisciplined mentally this week, so they ended up in my notes. I went back to the review that I remember reading in the New York Times last year when this movie, Interview with the Vampire, came out and was being talked about a lot. It's a review. The review is entitled, Rapture and Terror, Bound by Blood, and it's by Janet Maslin. And in it, she speaks, she begins the review this way. Eroticism bubbles beneath the surface of every vampire story, but Anne Rice is a writer to make the pot boil. Miss Rice's hothouse blend of pretension, swooning seduction, and avidly sensual horror has brought strikingly contemporary nuances to the vampire genre, infusing it with the literary equivalent of new blood. Her dense, suffocating novels have done as much to plumb old mysteries of the occult as to create new ones atop the bestseller list, but that's another story. The reviewer then goes on to say of the film, as Miss Rice readers know, Interview with the Vampire is strong stuff. Bloodletting, wanton cruelty, innocent victims. In terms of the flouting of middle-of-the-road values, the film also takes the frankly homoerotic overtones of Miss Rice's Miss Rice's novel and makes them more so. The film never condemns its character's murderousness nor thinks a thought deeper than, quote, we must be powerful, beautiful, and without regret. Now, this film was quite popular. Today, we have a culture increasingly, I think, preoccupied with death in a morbid way, increasingly in the business of death, in the business of death. And on a much lighter note, this is why I got into this in a way. I shouldn't have, but I got into this because this week, I'm going to stop reading newspaper stories, but this is the last one. This week, I read this funny, well, I read this thing in the New York Post book world, and you'll see the well, <laughs> how it got to me. Here's what it says. 
Vampire novelist Anne Rice launched her new book by dressing up in a bridal gown and lying in a coffin in a New Orleans cemetery. She was then pulled in a mule-drawn hearse to her first signing for the book, where she autographed for five hours. This is what <laughs> For five hours. The 2,000 people in line drank free beer provided by the bookstore. So you immediately know my reaction to that was, she autographed for five hours, 2,000 people in line. <laughs> I did indeed. It was a free beer. Maybe. Well, I just bring these strange, sordid things to the fore here to show that we live in a world that has become, without us realizing it, morbidly fascinated by death. And by most people's estimation, the most important philosophical thinker of the modern world has been Heidegger. And Heidegger spoke of being unto death. In other words, death became the essential phantom that had to be constantly invoked in order to keep life mysterious and meaningful. A constant background preoccupation that structures human consciousness. And Ernest Becker picked up on the same thing. Heidegger's heroic preoccupation with death brings to its modern conclusion Greek philosophy's perennial fascination with death, a, a fascination that begins with the death of Socrates. Death is a form of the false transcendence. Fascination with death is a form of the false transcendence. Sebastian Moore says, death is our God dis displacer, our pseudo-God. He says, in this thing that you've heard me quote before, but I think it's absolutely marvelous. Sebastian Moore says, Death as ultimate horizon lets sin make as much sense as sin can make. And so we live in a world where suicide, physician-assisted suicide, euthanasia, abortion, um, this sort of thing is talked about and um, practiced and we have this fascination with death in popular film, which is either violent death or cultic death. But in both cases, there's a kind of catharsis involved, a kind of uh, quasi-religious catharsis. Maybe it's the quasi-religious catharsis of a, of a uh, violent movie, you see, a Rambo movie or something like that, The Terminator. Or maybe it's the quasi-religious catharsis of a horror movie. But we become fascinated by it. And I think, I think we have to see this fascination with death in our world as symptomatic of our abandonment of the biblical revelation. Because in the biblical revelation, the tomb is empty and death is conquered. Death, where is thy sting? It doesn't mean death's not a, not a serious matter, but it means that one doesn't turn it into a cultic affair in order to try to generate a, a kind of sacrality that we're otherwise lacking. I think it has to do with this question of whether we 
walk away from the old sacred system and just end up in, in a secular world. And if we do, we'll create some kind of sacrality out of what, whatever is the most numinous thing around. And the most numinous thing around is always going to be death. So we end up going back to the tomb. Conventional culture begins at the tomb. We keep going back to the tomb, back to the either to the site of the frenzied murder or killing, or to some kind of cultic of a thing that takes place in the tombs, at the tombs. Seems a little strange to be talking this way. But I, I, I want to frame the New Testament's reflection on the resurrection that way. So I'm finished with my aside, and I apologize for it. It was a sordid affair, no doubt. If we go back to Luke, here's what we have. On the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, taking spices they had prepared. They, now, so they were coming to the tomb. Why were they coming to the tomb? They were coming to the tomb to perform the rituals required at death. So, and the rituals required at death are all of those that have to do with... with um, putting death back somehow into context and rationalizing it and smoothing things over. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, and when they went in, they did not find the body. While they were perplexed by this, and not, by the way, the empty tomb, as you know, was, was simply confusing. There was, nothing, there was no resurrection of attached to it in the first instance. It simply was a form of confusion. So they did not find the body, and they were confused about that. And then two angelic figures, two men in dazzling clothes, stood beside them. The women were terrified, bowed their faces to the ground. The men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? That's really it right there. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. And then they say to, to the women, Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified and on the third day rise again. Then they remembered his word. Now this goes back to the problem that Jesus had. He could not get that across to them. And only after the crucifixion do they... Do they remember this? And it's so clear in Luke's gospel that the cross was so scandalous for the followers of Jesus that everything depended on them somehow getting past that scandal. And they couldn't get past it in the first instance. So remember how he told you. So now it's coming back to them. Okay, now back to the business of scattering and gathering. Returning from the tomb, they told all this to the eleven and all the rest. So they have moved in, the women move in to the tomb, but you see that moving in, that kind of gathering could have been simply another version of the gathering at the, at, at the, at the site of the sacrificial victimization because it's simply going to the tomb preparing the body, decorating the tomb, building a shrine, etc., etc., etc. It's another version of that. So it was a gathering impulse that was conventional, completely conventional impulse. They were drawn in towards the tomb. But the tomb is empty. 
So now they come back out. So now you have this pulse beat. They go back out, and they find the others. Now it's interesting here, it just says, they told all this to the eleven. Now obviously the eleven were together in one place, but there's no word used there for gathering. Later on, when we have the eleven later, they're gathered. But here, they just told the eleven. Maybe they went from house to house, you see, we don't know. They told the eleven, and all the rest. And now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told this to the apostles. Luke is making a point. It's the women and they tell it to the apostles and the women in the patriarchal world of the first century are unreliable witnesses. They're like children. What do they know? Religion is man's business, you see. So they're, they're given to these flighty ideas, okay? You can't rely on So they didn't believe. The men didn't believe. But these words seemed to them, the men, an idle tale, and they did not believe them. In other words, these... Now, let's give the devil its due here. These guys are not credulous. The early Christians are not New Agers. They're not willing to believe any damn thing that comes along. You see what I mean? So... They're, at least we have to give them credit for that. Now, they're wrong in this instance, but the point is they're not willing to just snap up anything that comes down the pike. And they don't believe it because it doesn't make sense, you see. And because these women, well, then maybe they're not reliable. That's the part of that whole patriarchal thing. But here's the important thing. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb. Stooping, looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. Then he went home amazed at what had happened. Still no resurrection. In other words, he's just, he's just amazed by it. Don't know what to make of it. The point I want to stress is he jumps up and runs to the tomb. This is absolutely essential. Because I would say, I would say this is the birth of what... I suppose we might call moral empiricism. Peter's going to find out. Now, the tomb represents the sacred place. You know, in first century Judaism, a corpse and tombs had to be avoided because if you came in contact with a, with a, corp or a corpse or a tomb, then you were defiled by it and you had to go through ritual purifications in order to take, place, to take part in the... Uh, in, in the religious life of, of uh, the time. So, you know, you didn't approach those. Now, the women had gone there for ritual reasons, you see, so they theirs was a, pres uh, a prescribed uh, approach. But Peter's not going there under any of those circumstances. And he, the fact that, and the, and the power of this statement here, he jumped up, he rose up, and ran to the tomb. And you get the running to the tomb also in the Gospel of John. The running to the tomb and looking in. And I would say that's an example of moral empiricism. He wants to find out. He needs to find out. And he wants to sort it out for himself. He wants to find out if this is a fantastic tale or if it's true, if it's firm facts. So this is, I would call this the birth of moral empiricism. Now the question would be, 
with the unleashing of this impulse, this moral empiricism, how long would those under its promptings continue to believe in, say, the thunderbolts of Zeus that strike down the transgressor or the guilt of Oedipus? I'm, what I'm, I'm just drawing in mythological references, you see. When you're in a world that's under the, in, uh, under the mandate of what made Peter jump up and run to the tomb to find out for himself, how much longer, then pretty soon Zeus and his thunderbolts are going to become just like the Wizard of Oz. You know, just draw the curtain back and there he is. And Oedipus's guilt is going to be investigated further, you see. Is that, is that really the imputation of the crowd, you see, and so on and so forth. All I'm saying is, I'm loading up this phrase because I think it's a tremendously important phrase. He jumped up and went to find out. And I think from this impulse, Western science is born. Let's find out. Let's find out for sure. And it made me think of another Simon. This is Simon Peter, you know. But there's another Simon, and that's the Simon in Golding's Lord of the Flies. And at exactly the same moment, in a way, in that story, a moment when there's a lot of confusion about something in a uh, in a remote place that's that's vaguely sacral and and uh, and terrifying. The the boys in Lord of the Flies are down at the on the beach, and there and there's a corpse up there, which is a an airman that has parachuted and died, and now that's it's being slowly turned into a cult shrine. And the boys are all cowered by this, and they're inventing primitive religion right there on the beach because they have the, there's this there's this thing on the hill up there, and they don't know what it is. And we have first of all Piggy, who represents another kind of science, a kind of dry, rationalistic science. In the story, Piggy says, "Life is scientific. That's what it is. In a year or two, when the war is over, they'll be traveling to Mars and back." I know there isn't no beast, you see. So he has a kind of, he's, he's really grasping at straws, but since this is a scientific world and we don't have to worry, he knows there's no beast, but he's still cowering on the beach. That's the main thing. A few minutes later, we have the following. I know I'm getting off track, but put up with this for a sec. We have the following. It's uh, Golding writes, For a while they sat in depressed silence. Then Simon stood up, this is the other Simon. Took the conch from Piggy, who was so astonished that he remained on his feet. The conch gave him authority to speak. Ralph looked up at Simon. Simon, what is it this time? A half sound of jeering ran around the circle, and Simon shrank from it. Simon, by the way, is the one who's going to be the sacrificial victim. Simon says, I thought there might be something to do. Something, again, the pressure of the assembly took his voice away. He sought for help and sympathy and chose Piggy. He turned half toward him, clutching the conch to his brown chest. I think we ought to climb the mountain. The circle shivered with dread. Simon broke off and turned to Piggy, who was looking at him with an expression of derisive incomprehension. What's the good of climbing the mountain, they all said. You see? 
Simon whispered his answer. What else is there to do? Well, I share that because, I mean, I hope you see the connection. What I'm trying to say is that that the cross and the resurrection break the grip of the old cultic system and the epistemology that is part of it and inspire those who will be who will eventually become Christians with a determination to find out what's really what, to sweep the myths aside and see what really happened. And and that wonderful verse in Luke where it says Peter jumped up and ran to the tomb, I think is tremendously important in that respect. Finally, the most important story I haven't even told yet. The most important story is the story of Emmaus. And I would begin by connecting the story of the two disciples on the way to Emmaus, which is a resurrection story of sorts, but it's really a recognition story. I would begin by connecting that with the earlier verse, which said those who came to see the spectacle actually saw what took place, and they went home beating their breasts. Because these two disciples are going home. They're going to Emmaus, which is their home, and they're going... Uh, crestfallen. They're going in defeat, in despair. It all came to nothing. They're going home beating their breast. That is to say, in consternation about what happened. And this is tremendously important because the question is, are we going to drift out into, into nothing but a secular existence, which means we'll get so desperate that we'll recreate the old sacred system, with some kind of cultic fascination with death or with the frenzied violence that, that uh, you know, redemptive violence, something like that. Are we going to drift into that or is something else going to happen? Well, here are two. This is a little bit. I would connect this with the lost sheep story in a way. Here are two people drifting out. You see, just drifting out. And the good shepherd will abandon the flock and go and get them. They were going to a village called Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem and talking with each other as they went about all the things that had happened. In other words, they were saying the promise has failed. The the biblical promise that we saw in Jesus has failed. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus drew near and went with them but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now, this is theology. This is theology. Jesus draws near at that time of despondency, you see, when everything seems not to be working anymore. My prayer life is not so good. And my faith, I have a lot of doubts. Or, you know, that kind of thing. This is a very opportune moment. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. This is a... This is in the passive verb here. The Greek means it's not something that's a flaw of theirs. They can't recognize him for other reasons. And I think they can't recognize him for the same reason. In a way, it's like the cross. It has to be that way. There's a Robert Frost poem where Job asked God long after the fact, why did you do that? 
And God responds, this is Robert Frost, of course, but God responds by saying, it had to seem unmeaning to have meaning. That's a pretty amazing thing. Anyway, they didn't see, they didn't recognize him. And he said, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? And they stood still looking sad. Now, I think, that, I don't want to be too therapeutic here, but I think it's pretty interesting that they're moving out and Jesus, Jesus doesn't go stand in front of them and say, get back to Jerusalem. What are you doing? You see? <laughs> he walks with them. In other words, this is an act of apostasy in a way. I mean, it's innocent enough act of apostasy. It's just them drifting away. And Jesus drifts away with them. He actually, he doesn't try to turn them around in their tracks. He walks with them. And then he says, what are you talking about? And they stop and look sad. And so their journey is interrupted. And we have a note here now of something else. Before it's them talking about, well, da, da, da. And suddenly they're touched with a sadness. Again, I don't want to be too therapeutic, but I think that's an interesting moment. And then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these past days? By the way, if Cleophas is the same Clopas in Gospel of John, then the other disciple may very well have been his wife Mary, who was at the foot of the cross in John's Gospel. I mention that because I think that's a nice thing. It's, we don't know who the other disciple was. Uh, but it's very, they, they end up at their home. It's very likely that it was. I mean, it makes sense that it was Mary. I like that because we immediately assume that it's a man. So Jesus said, now this is, speaking of being therapeutic, they say, are you the only one that doesn't know about all these things? And Jesus says, what things? Tell me the story. Talk about it. You see, this, it's almost like that, the therapist saying, well, talk about that a little bit. You see? But more profoundly, really, it's Jesus saying, well, tell the story. Begin by just telling the story, which is how... That's, that's how we get creeds. In the, in the biblical tradition, we get creeds by saying, okay, well, just tell the story. And as you tell it, the nickel will drop because here's what happens in the biblical tradition. You think the promise has failed, but you don't realize that the apparent failure of the promise is the way in which the promise is kept in the biblical tradition. So the biblical tradition is always looking like the promise has failed and then discovered that in that apparent failure is the keeping of the promise. So you find that out by telling the story in retrospect. So Jesus says, well, just start the story. Start the story and see what happens. See if it takes you someplace. So they began. Well, he said, Jesus said, what things? Speaking in the past tense, they say, the things about Jesus of Nazareth who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. And that's where the story ends for them. They can't go on. They say, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. This but is precisely because of the cross. They can't put the redemption in, they can't fit that together with the cross. 
Yes, and besides this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb this morning, and when they did not find the body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. So Jesus begins to talk to him. He says, How foolish you are and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all of Scripture. Now, in other words, what we're having here is a story about the process in the early church of coming to grips with the cross, discovering with the Spirit of Jesus among them that the cross was indeed the fulfillment of the entire biblical tradition. Interpreting all of the scriptures in terms of the cross, as you no doubt know, the Emmaus story is patterned on the Christian liturgy, the early Christian liturgy, which is still exactly the same pattern as the Mass, the liturgy of the Word followed by the liturgy of the Eucharist. So there's been the liturgy of the Word here, the interpretation of Scripture, and now it's time for the liturgy of the Eucharist. So as they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead of them as if he were going on, but they urged him strongly to stay saying, stay with us. The Greek here is very, it's almost they restrained him. Saying, stay with us, because it is almost evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. And then they have a meal. And the guest becomes the host. And I suppose this is a pun on the word host, because this is the Eucharistic meal. The text says, when he was at table, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it. You see, that would have been the job of of the patriarch of the family. And Jesus takes that job. He blessed the bread, broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened. At that moment, their eyes were opened. And they recognized him. And he vanished. So the resurrection, Luke is saying, is not exclusively something that can be relegated to the past. It is an event. But it's not an event that chronological time deprives us of. They recognized him in the breaking of the bread. Their eyes were opened, and they recognized him in the breaking of the bread. They said to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the way, while he was opening the scriptures to us? So that's a beautiful story. That's a story uh, really of the early Christian liturgy. Now, it's, now we're back to the other question, gathering and scattering. That same hour, they got up and returned to Jerusalem. And this is very much like Peter getting up and running to the tomb. 
Now they got up and returned to Jerusalem. So the, the, it looked like the diaspora was underway. See? It looked like the great cultural diaspora. I, I would say that that moment in Luke's Gospel right after the crucifixion, which says they, they went away beating their breasts, is the beginning of, of the cultural diaspora, which, will, which is still in process. It's the Big Bang, in a way. But here, something is reversing. Another gathering is taking place. After this experience, another gathering is taking place. And they went back to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. Before, when the women went to, to the eleven and to, to others, it just said they went to them, remember, but didn't say they were gathered. So you could say, well, maybe they were all in one room. Maybe they went door to door. point is, we're not told that they were gathered. Here we're told they went back and they were gathered. And they said, this, these, this gathered community said, the Lord has risen and he has appeared to Simon. Then the two had been, that had been on the road to the Emmaus told what had happened to them on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. So another gathering is taking place. We, haven't, we have one more scene in this gathering, and that's at the end of the, uh, of the last resurrection story in Luke, and that is while they were all together, Jesus comes to them. Now, in order to understand this, I'm not going to spend much time on it, but in order to understand this story, we have to realize that even as Luke is writing in the, in the uh, late first century, the Gnostic... Uh, reading or understanding uh, is already creeping in and that is to to think of the God, to think of the resurrection or even the crucifixion uh, in gnostic terms as to say an ethereal reality that is different from and superior to the created order and that the created order is is this evil squalor and we always must appeal to this ethereal reality and it robs the, the resurrection of its corporeality. And uh, the early uh, Christians were at pains to try to resist that tendency. The, the Gnostic uh, influence was very powerful in the Greek world of the time. And so here's Luke's version of that. Jesus shows up, stands among them. They're all terrified. They think they're seeing a ghost. You see, and this would be that thinking of the risen Jesus as a as a as an ethereal specter. And he said to them, Why are you frightened and why do you have doubts? Look at my hands and at my feet. It's me. Touch me. See for yourself. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this he showed him his hands and his feet. While in their joy they were disbelieving and still wondering, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? That's the clencher, you know. <coughs> and they gave him a piece of boiled fish. And he took it and ate it in their presence. This is Luke's way of trying to underscore the resurrection of the body, the corporeality of it, to keep it from being etherealized into some other Hellenistic, Gnostic, idea. And then Jesus teaches them again about 
scriptures being fulfilled in his suffering and resurrection and how repentance and forgiveness must be preached to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. And he says finally to them, stay here in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Luke, you know, is going to write the Acts of the Apostles. In chapter 2 of the Acts of the Apostles, you have Pentecost. That's the clothing with the Spirit from on high. And then they begin to go out to the, into the world. But that's, another, but that's not scattering. After Pentecost, that's a missionary work. That, the movement that happens after Pentecost is not scattering. It's going out to establish beachheads of the gathering all over the world. But for the moment, he says, stay in Jerusalem. And that's emphasized again at the very end uh, in the Ascension. Uh, Luke tells us this. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he withdrew from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in temple blessing God. Now, let me say two things. First of all, about the last verse. They returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Now, earlier, during the Passion story, Jesus is carrying the cross. He walks by the women of Jerusalem and they're wailing. And he says, don't wail for me. Wail for yourselves and for this holy city because it's going to be rubble. It's finished. And now he tells them to return to Jerusalem. They return to Jerusalem with great joy. Earlier, when he first came to Jerusalem, his, his disciples were awed by the temple. They looked at the temple and they said, whoa, what an amazing thing, all those, all those uh, marvelous, uh, adorned, beautiful stones and so on. And Jesus said, not one stone will be left on another. In other words, he's announced with, with unmistakable clarity that Jerusalem, the holy city, and the great temple are, are finished. You see? They're, it's over. Nevertheless, they're to go back there. Now this, I think, is tremendously important because it has, for me at least, for me, it has to do with Christianity's unique historical challenge, which is to abandon the sacred system, but not to abandon it in some crude, clumsy, secularizing way. To leave it, but only to leave it under the impulse of a, of a religious prompting. So you go back to the city. You know that it's finished. You know that's not going to last. But you don't walk away from it. You go back there and gather up inspiration. And then, and then you move out from there. Gradually. Move out slowly. Only, under, only after the Spirit moves you. Jesus didn't say, don't go back there. It's finished. Go out into the world and do the best you can. He didn't go back. Wait for the Spirit there. Even though that institution is rigidified, even though there, there are aspects of it that are going to that are going to pass from the scene, 
you begin there and you carry on because salvation history, there's a radical break in salvation history at the cross. There's no doubt about it. But it is of a piece. That's why Christianity, Christianity regarded the Marcionite heresy as heresy. That is to say, the idea that, well, let's just forget the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. It's of a piece. We must carry it forward. It's still the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Which takes me to the, this little poem that I quoted earlier in our session, and I want to I wanna more or less end with it, by Lewis Simpson, which is, the following, six little lines. There's no way out. You were born to waste your life. You were born to this middle-class life. As others before you were born to walk in procession to the temple, sing. And I would say Christianity exists to show the world that those are not the only two alternatives. that it's possible to leave the sacred precinct in procession singing, headed towards an eschatological vision in history with our religious sensibilities increasingly heightened all the while, responding to a religious call, not simply to a secularizing impulse. This concludes The Poetry of Truth, Reflections on the Gospel of Luke. If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org. That's cornerstoneforum, all one word, dot O-R-G. Thank you for your interest in our work.